to the Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership, and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of the Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan, and as always, I'm here with Mark Crosweller. By way of introduction, for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis, security, and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, welcome back. It's great to have you with us for another episode of the Allegorical Life podcast. Today we're having a chat about leadership and this really comes off the back of your last blog post which is called Arriving on Foot and Living on Horseback and it's really uh, an observation of the different kinds of leadership we are seeing in the current world and through our collective COVID experience. So I wanted to ask you, how much of leadership do you think is about trust? I think all of leadership's about trust, Jordan. Um, really, in leadership, what we're trying to do is um, take people in directions that otherwise would not go, um, are too fearful to go, or hadn't thought of going. <clears throat> so we're trying to take them in a in a direction that, you know, on some level they hadn't thought about or don't want to go or fear, and so that straight away sets up um, the need for relationship. And the basis of the need for relationship really is to trust the person. So it can't be anything but relational. It might be relational in a symbolic sense or it could be relational at the personal sense, but nonetheless it's still a, uh, like a social contract or an exchange between two people to say, look, um, I'll go in the direction you want me to go or I fear going there but I trust you or I don't really want to go there but I trust that it's the right thing to do. Um, so it never goes away. And it often, well, when I say never goes away, the need never goes away. Trust is often lost, of course, because things happen and it can be breached and when it is breached, it can be difficult to recover. But often the way that it is recovered is through intention. So, you know, what was was your intention? If your intention wasn't to cause harm or to breach trust, but trust was breached because of a level of ignorance or a level of uh, causation that you had no control and couldn't foresee or foreshadow, then you can probably get it back. But if your intention moves off the, the benefit of others um, or the the original intention for which you establish the trust, then you, you'll lose it pretty quick. So so it is fundamental and it's also intuitive. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of uh, Stephen M.R. Covey who was the son of the famous Stephen Covey, the American consultant, who wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. And you know, he made the observation that um, it was... Um, very costly not to have it in an organisation or in a relationship. So if you don't have trust, you have layer upon layer upon layer of process and procedure and, and, and you know, business cost really or, or relationship cost um, or societal cost. Uh, it's really fundamental and it re- relies principally at the relationship level on two things, your character, so, um, you know, your integrity and your intentions, Um and your competence, your ability to do the thing that you've been asked to do or you said you're going to do. So it starts with character and competence. And if either of those two things are missing, uh, you won't secure the trust of another person. And Jordan, when we meet people, 
um, it's almost a subconscious process that we're doing exactly that. We're working out their character and we're working out their competence and we do it in about four minutes. And we've made an 80% decision in about four minutes as to whether we can trust somebody. And then we seek to continue to validate the same, is my intuition right? So it's, it's, it's innate, you know, it's very, it's fundamental to how we get on in the world. And if you're going to stand on the metaphorical podium and, you know, charge down the road and expect people to follow you, then they're going to be weighing you up on your character and your competence. The interesting thing is that the character aspect of leadership, I find, has been uh, so subordinated in favour of outcome or rules, which are themselves uh, ethical framings in normative ethical theory, um, that it's having an effect on leadership. It's having an enormous effect on leaders because they're so heavily reliant upon, uh, you know, systems and processes and regulation. To to give an example, in the banking sector, uh, it is the most regulated sector I think we have in institutional society. And despite all of the regulation and the rules and the process and all that comes with it, they still get to sell policies to dead people. It came out in the Royal Commission, you know, 12, 18 months ago, and that's a character flaw. That's, you can't make a rule for that, or you shouldn't have to make a rule for that. You shouldn't have to write a rule that says you cannot sell a policy to a dead person. But, um, but that's what happens when you take the character component out of leadership consideration and you, you rely too heavily on the system and all that comes with it, it's regulatory framework and rules framework, uh, or an outcome-driven system that says, listen, just maximise profits to 5% if you can get there, um, that's where we run into trouble. And so the character aspect of leadership, the character aspect of ethos, needs greater attention, focus and investment and consciousness. And that's really uh, what I talk about a lot um, is that aspect of ethics because I think uh, it's available to everybody. Really, it's not you know you don't have to worry about the five percent productivity increase in the in the bank as being part of your ethic or writing all the rules of the organisation to make sure people follow them. Um, it's really comes down to how you behave, how you think, speak, and act, and how that creates your world and how that has an effect on other people. So, so trust, Jordan, is fundamental, um, and it. It, the need never goes away, but trust can go away pretty quickly. And Mark, how have we seen that happen on a global scale throughout COVID? I, th- I think there were some striking examples um, where where leaders, because I think they were tired, stressed, and let's face it, I mean, this thing's been going on for months and it is a chronic stress in society and, uh, you know, political leadership, uh, uh, institutional leadership, community leadership. I don't think there's a leader, formally or informally, uh, in community and society at the moment that's not doing it pretty tough and trying to navigate through a global rupture and you know draconian measures of isolation and the denial of liberty and freedom and all that comes with it. These are these are really complex environments. So they're getting worn out. They're getting tired, and they're relying more and more on their systems and their decision-making processes to guide them through because I think their cognitive ability to make an independent decision, it certainly gets hampered or impeded as time goes on and fatigue kicks in. So you'd sort of use the system as a crutch um, or the policies as a crutch to, you know, help you make the decisions you need to make because cognitively you start to go a bit fuzzy. So 
I, I sort of want to say that because I've been there myself, uh, particularly large-scale, long-term operations. You do notice a cognitive, cognitive impairment or a, a sort of decline in your cognitive ability. Um, but what it does do is <clears throat> the need for ethics doesn't go away. So we see um, the environment get tougher and leaders get fatigued, but the ethics, uh, the need for the ethical premise uh, doesn't disappear. <laughs> and so, so Daniel Andrews, I think, um, has done a great job in uh, Victoria particularly. I think he's been able to uh, maintain his ethical underpinnings. I think he's, he's um, genuinely put the needs of the people first. I think he's appears to have made the necessary concessions where it was appropriate to do so. Um, if we go to Queensland, um, I think, again, they've done a good job overall, but I, I do think um, there was a couple of big mistakes that the system created, uh, and I talk about it in the blog where, you know, one of them was a... Well, before I talk about the young girl, the first one was a, a mother who gave birth prematurely, prematurely sorry, to a young boy, and he was critically ill and had to be... And they lived in Lismore and he had to be flown to Royal Brisbane Hospital. So the, the young boy was flown to the hospital uh, in critical care, but the mother was told she couldn't go because of COVID-19, that she wasn't allowed to, to go with the son. They couldn't get her on the aircraft and and uh, she wasn't allowed to follow him and she had to stay at home until the son was uh, healed or made better. Now, if you stop and think about that, how brutal that is, uh, that a young mother has had to surrender a child to a an air ambulance essentially and, and, and watch the child fly to Brisbane and not be able to go with it. It must have been just so traumatic, but the rule said, no, you can't go. And then we have a young girl in Canberra um, in a time where COVID-19 hadn't been present for 60 days. So there is in fact no risk and there's no hazard and there's no vulnerability because there's no, um, there's no virus. So she, finds out, or she obviously already knew, that her father was dying. She sought permission to, to visit him before he passed and she, it was denied. Eventually she was allowed to go, but only if she isolated in a hotel for two weeks at her own cost. And in the meantime, her father died. Um, and then she was told that she couldn't go to the funeral, but she could be accompanied by security officials to have a private viewing of his body on her own. And... Um, and you just look at these things and you go, hang on, what, what happened? Like, it was, it was inappropriately assessed and the rules were too rigid, too black and white and too harsh and too categorical. And, and what should have been a compassionate response and a great opportunity for a compassionate response and an, and an example of, you know, leadership weighing up the, weighing up the situation and saying, no, 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 this is important symbolically and personally, and we can make this happen. We can make this happen because we have, as institutional leaders, access to enormous equities of power, wealth and resource. And that's what, that's what institutions actually have, Jordan. They have those things in, in, you know, that have been amassed through taxation and other measures, and they are there for the well-being of the greater good. That's what they're there for. They're amassed for that purpose. But, but when they're available to a leader and they're not used... Uh, because of some hardline decision, some categorical decision that says under no circumstance, that's when we get ourselves into strife. And that's when ethics is knocking on the door saying, hang on a minute, um, this is a worthy case. I did raise 
yesterday with colleagues, you know, where was the what I call the council of conscience um, in all of this decision making and systemic approach to COVID nineteen or any other uh, disaster or adversity? Really, where's the council of conscience? So, who are the people advising the leader? about these ethical questions from a compassionate perspective. We used to have them uh, through uh, to the churches and academia and even media some years ago. They were all, um, you know, trusted advisors to governments and large institutions about how things ought to be done. But what we've seen in the last, particularly the last 10 years, is an, is an individualism that has discounted much of that advice, uh, moved it off to the shadows or to the side, and, and, and a very, very small group of elite people make these decisions without the necessary reflection on some of these broader considerations. So that's a big subject, of course, and it's probably a big call, but I think it's true, Jordan. And so, so that was a great example where it was clear to the majority of people that that was a case that we ought to have been compassionate or more compassionate. I'm not saying that governments, governments have not been compassionate. I think they have been. I think the leaders have shown that, and I've, I'm on record as saying that numerous times. But the thing about trust and compassion, Jordan, as examples or kindness and patience and other virtues is that they're not permanent states. They're, they're available permanently. So they exist in the human mind uh, for access, for use all the time. So they, they don't go away. They don't leave you. But our consciousness of them, our capacity to bring them forward and use them, is intermittent because we get caught up in other things. So they're there to be used, but because we lack the competence or the confidence or the skillfulness or the mindfulness to bring them forward, we often miss the opportunity. Um, you know, a really simple example, my, my dear wife was in the supermarket a couple of weeks ago and <clears throat> a lady in front of her uh, didn't have any enough money to pay for her shopping. And so she had to take food out of the shopping bag and give it back so that she could bring the, the price, uh, the cost down to the amount of money that she had. And my my poor wife, in that moment, it was momentarily, it was spontaneous, didn't quite know what to do. And, of course, the, you know, it was all sorted out. But she came back to the car and she said, I wish I'd paid for that. I wish I'd paid for the, her shopping. And, and, and she's a very compassionate person, but she, she just felt a bit overwhelmed and, you know, didn't want to interfere um, but at the end of the day, you know, realised she missed an opportunity. Now, the reason I raise it is because we all face that dilemma. We can all kick ourselves and go, oh, I wish I'd done something. And I'm sure that the, the government of Queensland, some people would say, I wish I had done something. So it's not so much to blame people, Jordan, but it's to take the lesson and to analyse it and say, we missed a chance there. You know, ethics, ethics knocked on the door. Compassion knocked on the door and said, how about it? And, and we didn't do it. We all, we all have that limitation. We've all had that circumstance where we lost, <clears throat> excuse me, lost the opportunity to do something. So that's a good question then for leaders. Uh, how do they keep that door open to take up those opportunities when they're navigating through pressure and stress, they're enduring a crisis? And as in the COVID experience, this pressure can continue for a lengthy period of time. So from my perspective, Jordan, uh, it's important to hold the ethics that are most that are most important to you, which requires some reflection in its own right, but hold them as mindfulness. So um, don't ever let them leave the room, metaphorically. Um, really, they're one of the primary lenses for which we need to see the world. So 
to the point of trust, you know, trust never goes away. So make sure it's at front of mind, front and centre. In everything you think, say and do, to the extent at which you are able, contemplate are you impeding trustworthiness? <clears throat> contemplate are you impeding your capacity for compassion? Is anything that you say, think or do, or think, say or do, I think that's essentially the order, um, impeding upon those issues? And then I think your leadership style starts to change. Um, and you become wiser about how to use those ethics. But I remember, um, and I might have said this in an earlier blog, but I was challenged by a journalist um, uh, early in January after the fires had gone through the south coast of New South Wales. Um, and he was seeking or wanting me to be uh, critical of the government at that point in time. And I said, look, I'm not interested in making adverse comments. People are suffering enough as it is. And he said, well, what do you want to say? And I said, well, look, I do think we need a more compassionate disposition of leadership. And he said, straight away, he came back and he said, leaving compassion aside. And and I thought to myself at the time, you've got to be kidding me. Like, we've just lost people. People have died. Um, billions of animals have just been burnt. Uh, millions of hectares have been lost and people's livelihoods have disappeared. And, and we don't know the half of it yet. Like, it's still unfolding. And he says, put compassion aside. And, and there, there it is, Jordan, for all the world to see. That's what we do with ethics uh, of virtue is we push them to the side because it all appears to be too hard. But, but surely in such an adverse set of circumstance, the thing that we needed to see the, the world through, the lens in which we needed to see the world was the compassionate lens. And this is why I keep raising these issues that they themselves never leave, but we push them to the side. So... When we get tired and when we get frustrated and fatigued and stressed, that's the best time to bring them in. Uh, sometimes we need those things for ourselves, of course. We need a bit of self-compassion and a bit of self-kindness. That helps. It, it ought not dominate, of course, because it gets a bit narcissistic, but but it's certainly helpful. But it's the, they're the things that get us out of strife. They're the things that, that when we're pushed and we're stretched and systems fail or reach limitations, it's those ethics that get us through and they're waiting to be accessed and used. You know, they're waiting to be leveraged. They're waiting to be applied to the circumstance. And all I really need is some, is some commitment and some wisdom. You're listening to the Allegorical Life Podcast. Mark, you've said that ethics uh, can potentially be most powerful when the pressure's on and leaders are at their wits' end. Uh, do you think, though, that there's an issue with the perception of ethics uh, and there it conflicts with something that leaders are still trying to hold on to, uh, which is, you know, this uh, sense of power and authority? You could take that view. I think in adversity and crisis, I've, I've, almost without exception, I think people are trying to do the very best they can in the worst of circumstance, within the limits internally and externally of their world. And what I mean by the internal limits is the internal limits of mind, so they will have fatigue and tiredness and and also, you know, a bit of self-interest and arrogance and ignorance and all those things that we don't like to talk about, but they exist. Um, but also the external limitations of um, power, wealth and resource. You know, they may not have uh, things available to them to get the job done, for example. They might be limited in that way. But intentionally, so their intentional motivation is still trying to do the best they can in those circumstances. And I think that has been true of just about every leader. There are some exceptions. 
Um, but we'll leave those alone for now. Um, so, so I think, Jordan, that people are trying to do the right thing. Um, I don't think they're trying to hold on to power. I think in the wash-up, that's when that comes to the fore, when there's perhaps not sufficient reflection upon the imperfections and the fallibilities. And sometimes even when that is done, it's done with you know less than a modicum of integrity. So that's because you can you can hear the, the grab for power or the clutch for power coming through the comments, and so the the uh, the reflection and the um, and the uh, admission of imperfection and fallibility is you know is not really um, legitimate. Well it's, well, it's legitimate, but it, it, it comes across as being a bit artificial. So I think that's where people start to get frustrated and the trust starts to slip away and all comes with it. So, yeah, so it's complex, Jordan, it's complex. But my point is essentially that uh, this is what adversity does. It, it'll constantly throw up the opportunity to be ethical, constantly do it. And we should be alert to that to the extent in which we are able. And if we are tired and fatigued, Jordan, then put around us people that we trust and say, what do you think? And not what do you think about the economy or you think about the budget uh, or you think about, you know, the price. What, what do you think about the ethics here? What What is the right thing to do? And and have it as what I call a, a um, council of conscience uh, around you that can give you that advice and give you that stewardship or give you something to reflect on that is ethically premised that you can still make a decision about, but someone else is helping you do the thinking. Someone else is helping you do the ethical contestation. You know, ethics and morality are difficult things. They're, in leadership, some of the most difficult things, really. I mean, you know, whether we overspent the budget or not is pretty simple, really, but but the ethical question is much, much more difficult, but it's it's essential. So, you know, council of conscience, uh, in whatever form that takes is a pretty good idea for a leader, I think, if they're, if they're navigating through fatigue and complexity. Um, but we don't tend to do it. I think we need to do it, and we need to elevate the importance of these matters in leadership more broadly and help leaders to understand that these ethics are always accessible and available. And really, the only challenge is the contextualisation. How, how and when do you bring them in and how do you utilise them? That's a question of wisdom and competence. Uh, and confidence, of course. Um, but they're a great toolkit, Jordan. They've got me out of trouble. Well, the, their absence got me into a lot of trouble in the course of my career, but their presence got me out of a lot of trouble and that's why I'm so uh, so uh, keen to help others to, you know, to uh, develop them as much as possible. Thanks for joining us today on the Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you and we hope to have you with us again soon.